Why am I on planet Earth? So we talked a bit about that last week, a faith worth having. And I'm still just kind of going to the basics. It's the beginning of the year, which is the time when we tend to go back to the basics and answer questions of, wait a minute, why am I alive? What am I here for? What am I here to do? And how would I go about that? So if our mission is to be disciples of Jesus then that begs the question, or at least the first question in my mind is, could you guess it already? What's a disciple? If we're supposed to be disciples of Jesus, what does that mean? Does anyone have an answer to that question? What is a disciple? One that follows, follows what? Follows the teachings of of Christ. So, Follow is a different word, isn't it, than disciple? So tech, does anybody know the Greek word for disciple? Now we're just making stuff up. She said disciplinia. Just add that to the end of the word. It's the Greek word mathetes. And if you look it up, it's a, it'll, it'll tell you a learner or a student of a rabbi. So the disciple is not just a student. Like we have students in America. We have people who go to classes, go to schools, go to college, and they sit in little rows and they take notes and they take tests. They're learners. But are the students really being discipled by those teachers? Or are they just being educated? Because in the West, when we think of a learner or a student, we think of someone who goes to a classroom, sits down, faces forward, receives information, memorizes information, regurgitates information, and then gets a grade based on how much information they can regurgitate accurately. You're not graded on understanding the content. You're not graded on doing anything. You're not graded on learning a set of skills or behaviors. You're not graded on your life. A Western modern student is graded on the ability to regurgitate ideas correctly or accurately. There's a a physicist I really enjoyed, and he used to say, I don't care what you remember, I care what you understand. He would say, I don't care what you know, I care what you understand. I don't care if you remember who said what. He would read his stuff off of a note in his little pocket, and he'd say, you think that because I have my doctorate in physics, I should have all this memorized. He said, but I don't have it all memorized, and I'm not interested in you memorizing it either. I'm interested in you understanding. That's fascinating, isn't it? So one thing I learned, well, let me see if I said this correctly. A disciple is not just a student. A disciple is one who is being mentored by Jesus. Mentored by Jesus. Now, that's another word, right? If you say, I'm being mentored, what you mean is we meet, we have coffee, you tell me about your problems, and I tell you you should read the Bible more, and then we go home. That's not it either. But we'll talk just a bit more. In college, one of the things I noticed is you would, you'd, you'd get this list of classes that you could take. At the beginning of the semester, or before the beginning of the semester, you'd be looking at your classes and you'd be sitting with your advisor, and the advisor's job was to make sure that you didn't spend four years at college and then not take the classes you needed to get the degree you came for. Like You just took a bunch of stuff you wanted to take, which incidentally is how Steve Jobs operated. He took the classes he wanted to take and then he dropped out and started a, a successful company. There you go, kids. Ignore your advisor and don't finish because you got stuff to do. For most people, that doesn't work, just a, little, just, just a little heads up. But I'd look through the class list and I'd say, ooh, this class looks interesting. Oh, look at this class, like it's a, like it's a menu. Oh my goodness, I can't wait to take this class. Then you'd take that class and it would be horrible. Boring, uninspiring, drudgery. 
It's like, how do you make the most inspiring, exciting being in the whole universe boring? Well, you have to be a boring teacher to do that. God ain't boring. How come theology's boring? What am I missing? And so I figured out some of my teachers could be teaching like uh, stuff that's not in your Bible that you could read 101. I took a class called that, non-canonical writings for the study of the New Testament. And if you're thinking, I'm here to preach, why would I study a bunch of stuff that's not even, that I shouldn't even be preaching on in the first place? Because how many of you know in a church what you should be preaching from is the Bible? So why am I taking a class about stuff that's not in the Bible? Dr. Joseph Donjel. Oh, my word, you guys. I came away from that thing going, now I understand Exodus. Now I understand Paul. Now I understand 2 Peter. This is crazy. I never would have known that. Wow. And then I took the basic classes you were required to take, like inductive Bible study. Like, oh, this is going to be so boring. Dude, again, it was amazing. Incredible. I saw things in Mark I would have never seen before. Guess why? Dr. Joe Donjel. Everything I took with him, didn't matter what topic, didn't matter, blew my mind. Conversations when class was over, blew my mind. I remember he had a pager. You guys remember pagers? Because his wife had a heart condition and she was like on a list to get a heart transplant. And she was like pear-shaped from her, her heart failing. You know how your body style, like your it's fascinating to me. She was retaining all this water and she would walk like a few steps and just become exhausted. And they were like, what, maybe our age-ish or just slightly older at that point. So she was like way young and they're super in love. And at any moment she could drop dead. And he's there with his pager on waiting to get the call. Oh yeah, she's dead or in the hospital or whatever. And teaching with, with a sparkle in his eye. Not complaining. Worshiping, serving, preparing the next generation to walk with Jesus and read the Bible accurately and correctly and faithfully so, because the Bible actually contains incredible wisdom for our lives to be what God intended. He knew why he was on planet Earth. And everything, like, I'm telling you, informal conversations about politics, music, art, marriage, anything with, with Joe, you wanted to take notes and you felt like loving Jesus. So what I figured out from taking classes that looked good in the syllabus and then finding an experience that nothing matters but the teacher was what you do is you find the teachers that carry life and can give life and you take every class they offer. Who cares what it is? Otherwise, school's not at all helpful. Now you're in high school going, well, I can't pick my teachers or my classes. I just have to take what they give me. I'm sorry about your life, you know? But once you get out of there and you have freedom, you, so it's the teacher, not the topic. In fact, the student going, I want to study this and I want to study that. Dude, you're a student. You're too ignorant to know what you need. If you just do what you're interested in, you might go so far off mission and you never come back. You gotta find somebody who's living the life that you believe in your soul, you're called to live, and then submit to them and say, I don't even know what the right questions are, much less the right answers. I don't know what the right topics are I should be interested in, but I know the kind of life I see in you and I want it reproduced in my life. Now we're getting closer to what it is to be a disciple, aren't we? So Jesus is going to ask questions you and I aren't even asking. He's going to talk about topics you and I aren't even interested in. It doesn't matter. He has the right questions. He has the right answers to questions we're not even asking that we should be asking. Most of us come to Jesus because we made a mess of life and we want him to fix something we are getting wrong or rescue us from something because we start pretty dang selfish with me at the center and help me for my sake is usually the, way the place where we start. But if you give him an inch, he'll take a mile. And he'll usually help you on the issue you have the need, but then he'll open up to you a whole vision of life where you go, oh my word, I am needing change and wanting change. I didn't even know to want. 
I didn't know I had that need. I didn't, you know. What I'm talking about is a rabbi. We're called to be disciples. What does that mean? Well, it means nothing unless we have a concept of what a rabbi is. A rabbi was someone whose vision of God and life was so helpful that people came to the rabbi and said, teach me. I just watched, um, oh, Doctor, Doctor Strange? Who saw the Marvel's Doctor Strange? Yeah? I hope to make another one. I really like uh, Bernadine uh, Cumberberry. Ben, Benadryl Cumberbun. You're never allowed to say it correctly. That's the whole joke. You have to come up with more humorous, close, almost. Give me some more quick. What's the first name? Benadryl. Benadryl. Okay. Yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch. You guys are right. You're right, Dawn. It's Benedict Cumberbatch. Uh, there's a scene where he needs healing for his hands. And so he's, medical science cannot help him. So, but he, he finds this guy who had like a spinal injury and the spinal injury is unhealable. You cannot, you need a miracle. But this is a man who doesn't believe in miracles. He only believes in science. So he's trying to figure out what's the scientific explanation for how this guy had his spine fixed. So he goes all the way over to this, this group of, of mystic, mystic healers. And he has this big argument with this lady where he says all there is is science. And she, she, he says, all there is is matter. And, all, and you come to me with these slogans about spirit and the mind and, the, and belief. And there's this amazing scene. And this, I guess, is a spoiler. It's fine. It's fine. If you haven't seen it by now, you know. She just pushes his spirit out of his body. And he goes falling into the abyss of the spiritual realm. And then she touches his forehead and says, uh, open your mind or something like that. And, and what's his instant response? When he realizes there's a whole world he knew nothing about. He didn't have the right questions. He didn't even have the right worldview to, to know what the right questions were. And the first words out of his mouth when he realizes his entire worldview is wrong, teach me. That's rabbi. The rabbi is the one who sees what we can't see and is living like we can't live, who's walking in power we don't have, who's walking in freedom we don't know how to walk in, who's walking in love we don't know how to walk in. And there was something about Jesus that in seconds, in one encounter just like that, people said, teach me. You know, he encounters Matthew the tax collector, looks him in the eyes, says, follow me. And Matthew leaves everything and says, I'm in. And they knew, culturally, they knew what that meant. Jesus wore the clothing of a rabbi. He wore the robes of a rabbi. He walked around like rabbis do. And he taught the Bible like rabbis do. He wasn't pretending not to be a rabbi. Jesus knew he was a rabbi. Now, he was an unusual rabbi because he wasn't schooled in their seminaries, so to speak. And it confused them. He would speak in the temple and the people, the, the people would say, how does he know all this? How has he mastered the law at such a young age and he's not even been schooled by anybody? And Jesus said, I've been taught by my father. My teaching is not my own, says Jesus. I learned this teaching from the father. And they said, we don't even know what to do with you because you not only speak with authority, but when you give a command, spirits obey you. We got to go through hoops and get the right oils and say the right things and go to the right conferences and have the right people lay hands on us. You walk in and give a whisper and the demons are terrified. You lay your hands on the sick and the people get healed. We've come up with all these complicated theologies to make sense of why they're not healed. We don't know what to do with this Jesus person. But the correct response is not, let's kill him. The correct response is, teach me. Teach me. I think it's so interesting that the Protestant church, historically, has wanted to have Jesus as Savior, but has not wanted to have Jesus as teacher. We're like, ah, Paul's good enough for me. We're saved by grace. Do whatever you want. 
No. Maybe we need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to take center stage in our life again if we claim Jesus is Lord. Maybe if we want to be disciples of Jesus, we need to spend time actually looking at Jesus because he knows how life works best. Maybe, just maybe, the one who in him was life knows how life works, and we can walk with him and learn from him. Teach me. The funny thing is, is it's usually not us saying, teach me. You know what it usually is? He says, uh, you didn't choose me. And all God's Calvinists said, amen. And his Arminian said, I'm an Arminian, but it doesn't matter. It really doesn't. I still believe this. You came to faith because Jesus called you. You didn't come to faith because you're smart. You're not that smart. I'm not. You didn't come to faith because you're a good person. You're not a good person. He called you, just like he did John, just like he did Andrew, just like he did Peter. He's still alive. He's still a teacher. He's still a rabbi. And he still walks around tapping people on the shoulder, looking people in the eye of their heart and saying, follow me. There's a, there's a call that our souls are feeling for a life that's more than this. You were made for more than this and your soul knows it. Now, it's so easy for us to just sit and watch Netflix and bury ourselves in work and busyness and all the other things to try to not have to feel the pain of our soul not, not having what it really wants in life. And if you're like a lot of people, you, you're world-weary. Life's been so hard that it's easier to just sort of self-medicate and get busy and get distracted than it is to go deep with that hunger and listen to what your soul is saying. Because your soul is hearing the call of the Savior. You were made for more than this. And I think everybody hears it. This is why I think the Bible calls Jesus, right around Christmas time, we tend to sing this, desire of nations. I think the whole world knows we were made for more. And there's a yearning. Remember what Augustine said? St. Augustine. It's his most famous quote. Our hearts, O Lord, you made us for yourself. And therefore, our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. I think everyone feels that, even if, no one, even if we don't know how to articulate it. Jesus said this. I'm going to take some, some words of Jesus here. Matthew 23, these are red letters. Everything these Pharisees do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their tassels on their garments long. Phylacteries, a little packet of little miniaturized handwritten scripture that you'd keep on your head. The tassels on your garments are long. They love the places of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and they love to be called rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher. Who's the one teacher? It's Jesus and you are all brothers. And don't call anyone on earth father. I still, I, I, I love the Catholics and the Orthodox, but they do that, and I don't understand it, but okay, I get it, all right. Don't call anyone on earth father, for you have one father, and he is in heaven. So God in heaven is our father. And who is our teacher? And if you have Jesus as your teacher, who do you automatically get as your father? And if you recognize God as your father, who will your soul recognize as your teacher when his word comes to you? Because he said his sheep know his voice. Jesus said, if anyone wants to do God's will, he will know whether my teaching is from heaven. If your heart is lined up with the Father, it'll, it'll, your, it'll turn your little internal sensors, uh, it'll accurately calibrate your soul to know whether I'm really from God. Isn't that interesting? If your intention is just, I want to do God's will. I want to do God's will, by the way, is actually a, requires some change. Because what did I say in the beginning? Most of us don't come to Jesus going, I just want to do God's will. We go, I don't want to feel this way, is basically how it works for, for me. It's how, help, 
my life's painful because I'm bad at making choices, was how I got saved. I wasn't thinking, I want to be a disciple of Jesus. I was just like, save me from me, you know? So he says, if we all have one father, so don't call me father. I'm not your father. Don't call a priest your father. He's not your father. I sometimes struggle with people calling me pastor, to be honest, because it seems like the cultural equivalent of rabbi. So for many years, I was like, just call me Tim. Finally, I've recognized that I am a pastor. I actually am. And I am a spiritual father. I actually am. But still, I'm just trying to follow Jesus, right? Okay. So there's a, a disciple who's a learner, but more than just a learner, the disciple is defined by the rabbi. Because again, it's not just about content or topics or theology. We're looking to be mentored, to be, to be personally taught by someone who has that life that we want to see reproduced in ours. Because we speak out of what we know, but we reproduce who we are. Which is why I say, I don't... I, Okay. If you got somebody whose sermons are amazing, but they're addicted to porn, don't listen to them. You got someone whose sermons are incredible, but they're full of greed and pride, don't listen to them. And you go, well, how would I even know that just from a podcast? Like, I don't know. Maybe, maybe it's more important to be discipled by real humans with flesh and blood whose lives you're investigating than people on podcasts. Not against podcasts. And every human is a mixed bag. But there's stuff you catch. Life is more caught than taught. And a disciple leaves their life and completely rearranges their life around the rabbi. He's over there. And if you want to be taught by him, you have to leave here and go over there. It's costly. And again, the podcast is not discipleship. It's not the same thing. It's not bad. Paul wrote letters. I think that's their ancient equivalent. But it's not the same. Them boys, and there, and there were ladies, just, just to say that's super groundbreaking in the time of Jesus. He had many female disciples. He had many rich female disciples who supported him out of his ministry. And I can hear the conservatives saying, what a freeloader. So maybe that doesn't work. Better have a different theology of what, what spiritual, how that relates to finances. Okay. There's a cost to following Jesus. Each rabbi, so there's disciples, rabbi. Now there's a third word. So we have disciples, word one, word two, rabbi, third word, yoke. Not the yolk of an egg. I knew, I knew what some of you were thinking. As soon as I said that, you're like, I like my yolks just a little runny. A yoke is, is how you attach uh, several bursts of beaten. <laughs> <laughs> Who's next? <laughs> oh, man. Beasts of burden? Bursts of beaten? What am I doing in here? I promise you that was just coffee. That was not, I don't even drink. A yoke is how you connect several animals <laughs> who are pulling a load or a plow or a cart so that, so that they have a way of, of leveraging their strength for the task. And a yoke, if you're yoked together with a bunch of different beasts, you share the burden. Now think with me real quick. The, the, the rabbi's way of life, not just the theology, the rabbi's daily rhythms and rituals, the rabbi's patterns of life, the lifestyle, the habits, were referred to as a yoke. So yeah, the beliefs, yes, definitely the beliefs, Definitely the view of God, definitely the way of interpreting the Bible, but also the lifestyle, the way of 
treating people, the way of organizing your day, the way of the whole thing. It's called the, the yoke. So you would take the yoke of the rabbi upon you. What does that mean? It means you would choose to embrace, like boot camp, you would choose to embrace a completely foreign way of being so that you no longer dictate what you do. If you become a monk or a nun in the Catholic Church today, you understand a bit of what that's about. You give up all your possessions, you trade in all your clothes that reflect your personal sense of style, which is so important to Americans, I've noticed. You put the wrong pants on me and I don't even want to go outside because these pants don't convey who I think I am. Put the wrong hat on me and I go, I look stupid. Translation, I'm not conveying to you who I want you to see me as. But if you become a monk or a nun, you give up your clothes and you put on the garb. Usually it's drab garb, plain, anonymous garb of the group. You give up all your possessions. And now you get what we have. Whatever we have is what I have. I don't have anything of my own anymore. And what do you do in the morning? What they say. When do you pray? When they tell you. When do you work? When they tell you. When do you work in the garden? When they say. When do you sing? When they say. You take the yoke of that group on you. And why would you do that? Well, we Protestants go, I have no clue why anybody would do that. You can't be married. You can't be wealthy. You can't, you can't do anything you want to do. Au contraire. If all you want to do is love God, that's what they're going to teach you to do. They're going to teach you how to pray five, six, seven times a day on a schedule, the words that are inspired in the book. They're going to teach you to serve. They're going to teach you to kill your ego and your pride. They're going to teach you how to be radically generous. They're going to teach you about radical devotion to Jesus. They're going to organize the whole lifestyle around knowing God. And you go, but what they, they're just praying. I remember Thomas Merton, when he discovered the Trappist monks in Kentucky, he had gone through, uh, being a young person in like the 20s or so, he had gone through this, this thing where he became a socialist for a while. So he's just trying to figure out what's life for, how does life work? He's trying on hats, he's trying on worldviews, trying on values, trying on belief systems, trying on communities. Somehow he ends up uh, with these extremely uh, socially active, uh, aggressive people who are trying to alleviate poverty. They're serving the poor in the soup kitchen. He starts working with people who they're not just, they're not really communists. He doesn't know what to do with them. They, they believe in sharing, like communists do, but they're not really communists, so he doesn't quite know what to do with them. Unlike what he's used to, they don't seem to run out of hope. He figures out that there's this thread that has some, <laughs> something to do with Jesus. <clears throat> so he visits this, this monastery, and he, he sees this group of people who are not changing the world. They're not loud and proud. They're not trying to take over anything. They're not trying to set up shop in the middle of the city and be influencers, so to speak, like the modern, modern mindset of you got to go where the people are to influence them. These people go away from where the people are, and then they sing to God and pray to God and seek God and worship God. Totally. It seems like they've, it seems to him like they're not helping at all. And then he realized that the world should have spun into chaos by now. And that it was the prayers of these little groups of monks and nuns that were holding the world together in the spirit realm. So he joined them. And the weird thing is he influenced a whole generation for Jesus from a typewriter in a cabin in the woods by himself. Thomas Merton. Actually, he really influenced me. Yoke, point of all I just said is, Protestants coming to church on Sunday, that's not a yoke, dude. That is not near enough. They say it takes 10,000 hours of practicing a, you know, a discipline to get good at it. 10,000 hours. Malcolm Gladwell said that in his book, The Tipping Point. 10,000, that's the 10,000 hour rule. If you wanna get good, put in 10,000 hours. If you put in 15 minutes a day, uh, you're probably not gonna get there. If you put in an hour a day, it's going to take 27 years. If you put in eight hours a day, guess what? You just shrunk that sucker down quick. Which is why 
concert, violinists, violists, cellists, whoever. Well, how many hours do you think they practice a day? Everybody say eight. Eight. They're getting there fast. Have you ever seen somebody who's like 20 years old and they're just crazy good and then everyone goes, he's so talented. And then he wants to smack everyone because he goes, uh, yeah, I am naturally, I do have a natural aptitude for this. But do you see me playing this guitar 12 hours a day? And then, I, then you see me and you go, he's so talented. Like I didn't just do that? If we want to learn to live like Jesus, do you think we're going to get there without the 10,000 hours? Just say no. And some people go, yes, but it's a miracle. It is a miracle. But even supernatural things are meant to have the whole person be the whole way in, immersed in the thing. You know how many times the whole Bible would, would scream and cry about the issue of God's people having so many idols, worshiping and serving other stuff, putting other stuff in our hearts where only he belongs? And I've just thought this for a while now. If we're going to try to actually follow Jesus, it's going to be impossible to have the world's yoke on us and his at the same time. It's impossible. He talks, so, so, okay, we had, our words so far was disciple, rabbi, yoke. A yoke is his lifestyle, it's his practices. Jesus looks around and he sees people are living hell on earth. They, don't, they need a shepherd. So he says, take my yoke upon you. Come to me, all you who are weary and, and heavy laden. This is Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And that's not a transaction, by the way. That doesn't mean today you come to me, spend five minutes, boom, now you have rest. That's not what he's saying. Read the whole thing. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest. Here's how. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Right? The way you're living and thinking is why you are weary and heavy laden. So to get to the rest means to rethink and relearn how we're thinking and living from Jesus. Because his yoke produces the fruit in our life that it has produced in his life. So take my yoke on you and learn from me for I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How many of you know if you're a weak animal yoked to a strong animal, you ain't really carrying much of the load. To be yoked to Jesus means he does the lion's share of the lifting and the pulling. We don't need more laws. We don't need more rules. We don't need better morality. We need help. I need grace. I need someone humble and gentle who won't yell at me when I screw up. Who's not offended when I ask questions. The Bible tells me when people are gripped by Satan and they hate me because of it, so they reject my teaching. The Bible tells me to bear with them patiently in the hopes that they'll be set free from the devil's snare. Because if I lose my temper and yell at them because they're stupid, then they're definitely not going to get it, and now I've screwed up my walk. But look, Jesus is humble and gentle. Not only will he show me, but he'll help me. He'll answer my questions. You know, I, I don't... I don't really yell at Jesus, but I've heard people do it, and I don't think he got all that bugged, provided that their intention in yelling at him was not to accuse him of wrong, but to figure it out and go forward with him, right? Yeah, okay, so Paul tells Timothy that when people resist you as you're teaching Jesus, you need to patiently instruct them. Who, who, those who oppose you, you must gently instruct in the hopes that the Father will release them from the demonic blinding snare that's over them. Because our natural condition, guys, is full of pride, selfishness, pride. We think we're right. In fact, we know we're right. Proverbs says there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. So the natural way of thinking that we're all born into is chock full of ego and pride and then we internalize the, the, the ethical particulars from our culture, which is lost. And now we know. We don't need to, talk, to be taught. We want, the, we want to fix the world, i.e., 
Other people need to do what I want. And if they don't, they're the problem. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads to death. And the way of Jesus, the way of being a disciple of Jesus, is I make a clean break with what it is to be an American, with what it is to be, in my case, you know, a Mennonite or whatever. All that stuff is, needs to be laid on the altar. And then I come and I say, I don't know what I ought to know. I don't think what I ought to think. I don't feel what I ought to feel. I don't believe what I ought to believe. But Jesus, I see power and life and love in your eyes, and I want you to teach me. And really, I'm not the one making this up. He's calling me. Follow me. I love you. You're mine. And I go, really? Why would you love me after all I've done? Right? So, yeah. First word was disciple. Second word was rabbi. Third word was yoke. And now I want to talk about the cost. Disciple, rabbi, yoke, cost. If Jesus is humble and gentle, why does he constantly talk about how costly it is to be his disciple, his follower? And we've come up with this weird formula where if you'll just agree you're a sinner, uh, believe that he died for your sins, and say a prayer, then you're going to heaven. But Jesus never talked like that, nor did he talk about that. He talked about the way you're living is hell on earth, and it leads to hell forever. And if you want to live differently, you're going to have to go so much deeper than the Pharisees are going. In fact, their version of righteousness will take you to hell. It'll make you a worse person. We got to go all the way to the root like Carolyn, like you said to me the other day when I said I'm struggling with consistent discouragement and unbelief regarding the faithfulness of God in my life, I wouldn't have phrased it that way. I would have said, I'm failing him. What's the point? But I know when I pray about it, he says, oh, you don't trust me. You're, you're tripping over your inadequacies just like Moses did, just like Ezekiel did, just like Jeremiah did, just like Gideon did. And so Carolyn says to me, because I said, I'm trying to trust God with this thing and I just can't seem to do it. And she says, well, then you need to get to the root of the matter. If there's a sin in our life that we can't seem to break, then we're clearly mowing the weeds, right? We're cutting the rose bush off above ground. We need to get the roots out. So the question is, what are the roots? And Jesus would know, not me. But that's the issue. Jesus wants to deal with it from the inside out. And so he says, if you want to follow me, it's going to cost you everything. The kingdom is free, but it'll cost you everything. Forgiveness is free, but it'll cost you. My love is free, but it'll cost you. Cost you what? Well, to receive it, we got to let go of what we're holding instead. There's a newspaper ad that Shackleton is supposedly, I guess he put in the paper, I don't know if this is true or not, but it could be a, a creative uh, fable. If it's a fable, take it as still having some truth in it. Shackleton, you know, exploring Antarctica. He says... Uh, this is the ad that he put, inviting people to join him in his quest. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours of complete darkness, safe return doubtful, Honor and recognition in event of success. Bro, he had to turn people away. Because there's something in a human that wants to do hard things. People sign up to go be a mutter. Run a triathlon and run through the mud. People sign up to run marathons. People sign up to do hard things. Because there's some, people go, I want to live in a tiny house. Why? Because of the suffer fest of it. 
What do you mean suffer fest? Yeah, it's a festival of suffering. Suffer fest. We want to be challenged. We want to do hard things. Why? Look, when you, know, when you do something hard, like Linda walking down with the kids out the other week and sitting in the snow or walking around in the snow. We used to do that when I was a kid. Like, Come on, let's go. We're going to run around the house four times in the snow barefoot. Well, we were, we were, we were more than barefoot, but that's all I can say about that. Because <laughs> we were teenage boys. We were crazy. But why? Why do that? To prove you could. To prove you're not scared. To prove to who? Probably mostly yourself. Men wanted for hazardous journey, low wages, bitter cold, long hours, complete darkness, safe return, doubtful honor and recognition and event of success. There's something. <laughs> YouTube knows this about me, so YouTube says, hey, Tim, I think you ought to watch this video about sleeping in minus 30 without a tent. Why do you know me so well, YouTube? So Jesus, in explaining the cost of being his disciples, is not saying, hey, man, I'm so picky and hard to please. Because that's what he sounds like when he says, hey, y'all want to be my disciples? They're going to kill you. They will kill you. They will murder you. Your family will hate you. Your community will reject you. You're going to have to let go of all your hobbies. You're going to have to let go of your dreams for your life. You're going to have to make your career no longer your priority. You're going to have to make your own husband and your own kids no longer your priority. Your own parents no longer your main priority. You want to be my disciple? You really want to do it? You better know ahead of time what you're getting into. This ain't a self-help program. This ain't add a little Jesus to your life program, y'all. If you want to follow me, the only way it's possible is to, is to whole hog it, is to full-scale surrender it. You can't do this, you know? You can't put a, put, it, it's like standing on the ice. You can't spread your legs standing on the ice, bro. You got to pick one spot to stand in. You can't do it. You can't love God in money. You can't love God in ministry. You, you got to pick a priority. Is it Jesus or not? So he makes the bar super high. He doesn't say, hey, just come in, try a little bit. If you like it, the world will take you back. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Just give Jesus a try. If you don't like it, the devil will take you back. There's like layers of annoying in that. First off, so patronizing and condescending is the other. Is the devil take you back, you stupid? What? It's not how you talk to people, by the way. And first, don't give Jesus a try. Don't try Jesus. Count the cost. And when you know you're ready to make him number one, not boys, not, not career, not whatever, him... Then get baptized and sell out and every single day arrange your whole life around him. Or, or you're going to burn out and then you'll be like, oh, I tried Jesus and it didn't work. So many inoculations against getting the real thing. You know, get yourself a little, pray the sinner's prayer and get a little Jesus inoculation so that you, so that when people come to your door and they're offering you the real thing, you go, oh yeah, I've already been saved. You have not. You have no clue what it is to follow Jesus. You tried a little human man-made sprinkle Jesus on top of something. That ain't it. Now you think you know what you have no clue about. You think you've been there and done that, and all you did was buy a T-shirt. Right? So Jesus, in explaining the cost of disciples, is not picky. He's not hard to please. He's saying it's not possible. What, we're, what he's trying to teach us is only possible all the way in. So he's giving us advanced warning and letting us know what we're signing. It's the fine print that most of us don't take the time to really read. And then later we're like, did I say that? You did. You signed your name to a blank check. Now he's cashing it. It's really interesting. Did I mean this? Oh, I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, you did. He says that the cost is so high because following him puts us at war, at war with the devil, whom the whole world is under right now without knowing it. The whole spiritual world system is unbeknownst to itself, puppeted by demonic power. And to say yes to Jesus means you're at, you're, at, you're at odds with the whole world, the demonic. It means you're at odd with the world system, the way that seems right to everybody everywhere. And following Jesus puts you at odds with your own self, your own flesh. 
Which is why we say that we're in a spiritual war with the three things, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And that's correct. They say there's the, the battlefield is in the mind, and these are our three enemies. So here's Jesus, Luke 14. We're almost done. <laughs> there's a comedian called Dusty Slay, and whenever he feels like he's lost the people in the room, he says, we're having a good time. Yeah, we're almost done. We're having a good time. <laughs> he's hilarious. Hilarious. Small chuckle. Yeah, we're having a good time. I'd like to tell you that rather than ask you. Luke 14, Jesus says, it says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them. So large crowds. You'd think, you'd think he'd be going, woo, we finally got it. Nope, no. He sees large crowds, he gets concerned. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife, children, brothers and sisters, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose you want to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay a foundation and you're not able to finish it, everyone who sees will ridicule you saying, this person started but couldn't finish. I think it's okay to go slow with people. You offer them Jesus, but you offer them the whole Jesus, not a mini pill that inoculates. Patterns of belief completely need to be reformed because we've been discipled with the wrong rabbi who snuck in through all of our Instagram and TikTok and Facebook and you know, Twitch streaming and all the stuff. And we gave him eight hours a day, and we gave Jesus five minutes, maybe, if we're unusual. We're given 10,000 hours plus in a short amount of time to the world system to form the pattern of our mind, the beliefs of our mind, the attitudes of our mind, the ethics of our heart, the values that drive us in life, the narrative by which we interpret the meaning of our lives and the events that happen. Experts in the wrong thing. And Jesus says, yes, we're going to have to take radical steps to be my disciple. You want to live like me, but you want to do it in five minutes a day. You want to read a little Oswald Chambers, and one verse, and then th one paragraph, and five minutes of quiet, and then say that's going to make a difference, the difference that makes the difference. It's going to take more than that. Skip, 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 skip. So we're just beginning a conversation about what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus? You know? So I think the standard American answer is an hour a week and maybe five minutes a day. And I think that makes us just a little bit inoculated. Just enough Jesus to feel guilty. Not enough Jesus to feel alive. You hear what I'm saying? Just enough Jesus to feel guilty. Not enough to get free and think differently. Because the real way of the disciple is much more like apprenticeship than it is like just being a student. An apprentice would be like a 10 to 15 year old like say you wanted to be a uh, blacksmith. Your parents would sign a document that says, we're giving you up for two years, four years, whatever it is. We're not going to see you. You find a master blacksmith somewhere nearby and your parents sign you over to him. You're 10 years old, you're 12 years old. And you go work for him. First you start as his apprentice. You do what he says when he says, how he says. You speak when spoken to. You shut up and you serve. You go get buckets of water. You pump the billows. You get the coal. You do what he says when he says and you be quiet. You ask questions when you have questions and you say, yes, sir, thank you, sir. And you are not paid. All your work is done for free. And the first thing you do is shut up, watch, and learn. And that's a couple years. Then you graduate. You graduate. You make 
If you make something in the forge that he considers worthy, if your work has risen to the skill level that he considers worthy, now you're a journeyman. Now he can send you out in his name. He can send you out in his name to do work. But you still work for him. And you come back. And then when as, as a journey, and you can take money for those projects you do on the side. But you're still, all the rest of the projects you're doing with him, giving him money and not one cent for you. Then you can make a masterwork, something that the whole guild will come together and evaluate. And if the work is of a, such a high quality that the whole guild says, you are a master, now you've graduated to being a master. You're not an apprentice. You're not a journeyman. You're a master. And what that means is you now can take your own apprentices because you've been affirmed as having such a level of skill, not theory, not ideas, skill. And not only skill, but skill that you can convey. That is much closer to discipleship than sitting in a classroom regurgitating information and then getting a grade. It's working alongside Jesus. Hours and hours and hours a day. This is why I'm like, dude, if you're young and you just came to Jesus, it would be nice, in my opinion, if you took a couple years of your life and spent it 100% on discipleship before you decide what you want to do as a career. Go away to Rosedale Bible School or go to, go to YOM or go to Reach. Go into something where you're doing this, where you are breaking away from all the ordinary work-a-day world stuff to focus exclusively on a lifestyle where you don't get to say nothing except for you submit. You submit to a lifestyle, a pattern, a community, a structure of authority that's over you, that's giving you answers to questions you don't, you're too dumb to even know to ask yet. Well, that sounded rude. You're not too dumb. It's just that the questions of a young person are different questions than the questions of an old person. And we need each other. The old people need to hear the young people's questions and, the young, and, the, and vice versa. There's something about being close to death that sort of puts some things in perspective. And there's something about having your whole life ahead of you that puts different things in perspective. And the truth is old people still got their whole life ahead of them. And young people are pretty close to death.